and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, also known as NARC Troopers. You can visit my website at NARC Troopers to find many podcasts, articles from medium.com, and a video blog. All of them wonderful resources on your healing journey on the recovery from narcissistic and other cluster B disordered people's um, abuse. So today's topic, naked. Wow, there's lots of words for naked and doesn't that conjure up a lot of different images? Bare, powerless, vulnerable, nude, exposed, helpless. The narcissistic psychopath, also known as a narcopath, is a master at taking off your clothes. So the concept of being naked is one that can be disturbing. It implies that you are revealing your most innermost self, your vulnerable self, and that you're just standing there in front of some other person, subject to scrutiny and judgment. It reveals your imperfections and insecurities. It shows your flaws. Few eyes can gaze upon this flesh suit or birthday suit, if you will, that comprises a human form without feeling quite vulnerable and exposed. Few people can do that. Maybe if you're one of the people that hang out in those nudist places. We have some of those here around Austin, Texas. Hippie Hollow. You can search it on the web. There's several of them. Clothing optional. But most of us have some trepidation about taking off our clothes and bearing it all in front of other people. Um, you know, and that word is also used to describe things such as naked ambition or naked truth. So the word naked is what I'm inviting you to think about. Depending on the context, the word consistently conveys a powerful image. It's a bold word, don't you think? It's raw and unfiltered. Throughout my rather lengthy marriage, I maintained some modesty due to the fact that my husband was somewhat younger than me. I didn't want him to witness any aging part of the body, you know, and I was careful to maintain it and camouflage it and cover up any part that might not be quite so perfect. So often when I would step in the shower, he would be nearby and I would catch him standing there watching me. While I protested that I did not want to be seen in such an unflattering light, he always said the same thing. He always said, I am your husband. It's okay. I love looking at you. There were many of these awkward moments in the last few months, especially, but I didn't understand what they were at the time. He seemed to be staring a little longer as if he were making a permanent picture in his mind, you know, a snapshot moment, a frozen moment, I call them frozen in time, because he probably knew he was leaving, and he wanted to capture that snapshot to remember me by, to compartmentalize me 
into some little tiny box in his warehouse of ruined lives and preserve some little picture of me in my most vulnerable state. If you've never watched a predator before they devour their prey, they sometimes play with it just a little bit. Sometimes they lie on top of it. Sometimes they give it a little space to attempt an escape, only to pounce on it and hold it down again, initiating a little game of cat and mouse. My husband would put his hand on the parts of my body that were jiggly parts, and he seemed to take pleasure in reminding me of these jiggly parts. And um, he knew that I felt embarrassed and humiliated by having that pointed out to me, but he sure did like to do that. Very subtle. The world we live in today is filled with a paradoxical dichotomy of two extremes. On the one hand, we are all naked. We are victimized and stripped by our government, by bureaucracy, by racism, by marginalization, by the very fellow citizens that we coexist with. They strip us bare and exploit us, judge us, and subjugate us into a kind of indentured servitude. Emotions are raw and in full display. You know, it's behavior that would would have been shameless in the past. This behavior is now accepted as normal. The world has changed and the rules have changed with it. Pornography is the steady diet that our children cut their teeth on. You think that doesn't come without a price? I guarantee you it does. With the advent of technology, naked bodies are always just one little click away. Monogamy and forever love are antiquated, outdated, provincial notions that don't work in a society where immediate gratification is God and the selfish pursuit of what serves our, our highest good is the impetus behind everything we do. I'm so tired of hearing that. What serves our highest good? If it doesn't serve that, just toss it away. Discard it. It's inconvenient. It's holding you back. It's holding you down. You can't realize your own best self if you're, um, you know, held down by this, this burden, this, this albatross around your neck. So cut it loose, let it drop into the sea and see what happens. You know, I know what happens. I read the rhyme of the ancient mariner. I'm an English teacher. Of course, I know that poem. And what happens when they cut that albatross off, drop it into the sea? They're cursed and they all die. That's how it ends. They're cursed and they all die. So um, maybe we should hit the pause button and hesitate for a moment. The next time we're choosing our own selfish whatever, and we're calling it self-care and we're calling it a lot of other things, but really it's selfishness is what it is. It's putting our own needs above those of the people around us who love us and trust us and count on us. We're basically just saying, you know, hey, you know, maybe you do love us and count on us and trust us and all of that, but 
you know, we can't be here for you. It's really crimping our style. It's really holding us back. And so we got to go. Got to bounce. See you later. Good luck. Um, that's kind of the attitude. Everything is disposable. Disposable. It's like plastic utensils, you know? I, I was thinking about this metaphor the other day when I was talking to a friend. And I said, you know, it's like we're plastic spoons and knives and forks, which we all know are not the greatest. I said, I feel like there's some value in keeping good silver. And of course it gets dirty. It gets that dark, kind of black, uh, whatever that is, oxidized, something or the other. And you have to buy that polish and those special cloths. You have to put on gloves and you have to sit there and polish. And it takes forever. It's tedious. It's no fun. And uh, you got to make sure it's washed off really, really well because it's poisonous. And there's just a pain in the butt to have really fine silver that you're using, real silverware. And so a lot of people find it so much easier these days just to go for the plastic utensils. She said, I would be a fork if I had to be a plastic utensil. I asked her why. <laughs> Bless her heart. She said, because I would be poking at things and I would want to feel like I had some ability to um, pierce things around me and have some power. I thought that was the strangest thing. And um, I said, well, I wouldn't want to be a knife because those just snap off the first time you try to use them. A plastic knife just breaks. So I said, you know, I would be a spork. And we had a good laugh about that because, you know, at the end of the day, sporks are kind of useless. The little pokey parts are too short to really capture anything on the end of the pokey part. And then because it has the pokey part, the spoon doesn't really function as it's supposed to. <sighs> Just something to think about. Um, so, sorry, I got off track a little bit. Um, so at the same time, so we were talking about that dichotomy, that those that paradoxical relationship we have with our nakedness we are naked all of us all the time we may not be aware of it and it is a metaphor but a profound metaphor because we are naked our civilization is naked and while we're celebrating this we also camouflage it we also feel like we need to cover it um like there might be shame or there might be modesty or i don't know we we pile on layer, layers of political correctness, fascination with dimensional planes of existence and defense mechanisms that shield us and make us impenetrable and impervious to other humans. We conceal our intentions and all the while preach about manifesting our own destiny. We ask questions and chase answers. And at the end of the day, you know what? We're empty handed. Or we're just delusional and think we're not empty-handed when we really are. We live in this world of secrets and darkness with insidious deeds and dark agents. Nefarious players and criminal obscenities are covered up, excused, rationalized, denied, twisted, convoluted, and forgiven. We hide from each other and we cover our own nakedness with layers and layers of meaningless things. We think that money or power or fame are the answer to all of our problems. Yet those who have all these things 
are often even more miserable than the ones who do not. So we have this weird mixed relationship with being naked, wanting to cast off our clothes and join some hedonistic community where we can do whatever we want, when we want, to whomever we want, all in the name of achieving our highest good and our best selves. And at the same time, we try to cover and conceal and clothe ourselves and hide ourselves and and insulate ourselves from one another and even from ourselves and worship all of these false gods that can never um, give meaning or purpose to our lives. And while all of these mixed messages are being received from all these different directions, and while mankind grapples with the consequences of what their newfound freedoms bring, it is the person with the cluster B personality disorder, the narcopath, which the narcopath pretty much comprises all the parts of cluster B disorders, narcissism, antisocial personality disorder, and being a psychopath, all kind of mixed together, thrown into one pot and stirred up together. Um, you know, it is, it is those people who truly exhibit the epitome of nakedness. I want to talk about that. They are the ones that are the most naked of us all. They are the ones that are vulnerable and stripped away of their own dignity, their innocence, their very soul, and their heart and emotions and all that. The the immense shame that this narcopath feels creates empty caverns inside of them that can never be filled. And these windy, dark, and empty spaces echo a nothingness as this narcopath stands naked in front of what appears to be a very hostile world. You know, at a very young age, these people learned how to cover their shame and their pain and protect and shield themselves from the unbearable torment of whatever they were experiencing. And so they killed themselves. They killed themselves and find a mask and clothing and coverings to like try to camouflage themselves as much as possible. So no one notices that they are zombies. They're the walking dead. They're empty, hollow people who have nothing. They're not like the rest of us, yet they roam among us shrouded in these in these clothes that are um, sometimes beautiful, the things that they construct and fabricate, this false self, or sometimes like things knitted together that are glittery and shiny and quite seductive, but underneath it, what they're trying to hide is something perverse and shriveled, dead, not functioning. In place of this true self, the vulnerable, frightened, angry, helpless, naked child is replaced with an arrogant, confident, entitled king among men, prince among women, so that he, th- these people can rule the world from their imaginary realms. Beneath every narcopath's mask is a traumatized and injured child that 
just did not survive what happened to them. Narcissism and psychopathy are a trauma response and a delusional disorder. People with NPD and ASPD, antisocial personality disorder, they dwell in a make-believe world with magical thinking. It's a fantasy that they have retreated into, one where they always win and they're always in control of everything and everyone. And um, this compensates for their complete lack of control or any kind of authentic, genuine emotion. One of the greatest tragedies of life goes beyond the loss of a person that is in our lives that we care about. It, the b biggest tragedy is when we lose the relationship because we have a cluster B disordered partner and neither person maintains any true sense of self. It's when we lose our own identity. The true tragedy is when we lo lose our own selves. Their identity and ours both evaporate and are replaced with something else in these relationships. It becomes a shared fantasy of magical thinking in an imaginary place that does not exist. Maybe the world looks more beautiful for people who live in this imaginary wonderland. Maybe that's how my husband was always able to see such nuanced detail and beauty and color and resplendent things, you know, in the world around him. His sharp eye filtered all of the images around him in unique and creative artistic ways, and his perception was unique and insightful. He would reach down and gingerly stroke the fuzzy caterpillar as as, it, as I would just be rushing by too busy with whatever it was I was doing to pause for a moment and look at something like that. You know, the way that he could see the movement of the trees and the green belt or the patterns in a flower, you know, not just the Fibonacci um, patterns that we all know about, but other things more detailed and more intricate. He appeared to be such a gentle, tender soul. Maybe it's a kind of madness in itself, seeing the world through this different lens. Maybe they see so much beauty outside of themselves because they hold such darkness and horror within. Perhaps that's what gives them the gift of vision. That's what allows them maybe to see a world that doesn't really exist Things take on new shapes and colors when you're looking at them through this altered looking glass. My vision is failing, and at some point I most likely will be blind. As this condition evolves, um, the depth and, um, in a, you know, depth perception and shapes they tend to pull and twist and be convoluted and is warped. It's trippy, you know, and it uh, flies under the radar much of the time. And I don't realize how much I don't see what other people see until I find myself pouring um, milk beside the glass and 
onto the counter instead of in the glass. And you know, I think that's maybe what it's like for people like my husband who have this disorder. Maybe they just can't see the way the rest of us do, no matter how much they they try or want to. So so there we are, you know, the, the two of us all those years, this dysfunctional pair, both of us having experienced childhood trauma, both of us having horror stories from our youth. But, you know, at, at one point or another throughout our marriage, we covered each other to a, allow the other a little dignity. I think we did. It was like an intuitive, instinctive, um, we were compelled to try to help the other. It just, it's like, uh, it's like if you find a dead body, you want to cover it, right? To give it some dignity. It's sort of the same thing. Sad as that may be. Other times we had to strip away these things and look at the truth that was beneath these layers. But isn't that what all relationships are? Being naked in front of each other and unafraid? Seeing each other's jiggly parts and loving them anyway. Feeling excited and grateful that you have a person beside you that you can be so vulnerable with, so exposed so naked. But life with a disordered partner isn't always like that. Um, during the good times, the halcyon times, things may seem like they're even wonderful. But if you peel back the mask and you look underneath it, the truth is that the nakedness is distorted. It's stretched and twisted and convoluted and pulled like taffy. And it's, it's not recognizable. And the partner of the disordered person, the one as the one who loves them and hopes for them and prays for them, you become a little bit more twisted and convoluted every day too from living in that shared fantasy and in the end when the inevitable closure comes out of the clear blue sky in the middle of some sunny day just when you least expect it you know the whole world will witness something they're going to see you're standing there and you're going to be completely naked. You have nothing to cover yourself with, but it doesn't even matter because you are so raw and bloody and all you can think to do is try to stop the hemorrhaging and, you know, before you die. And you may fail um, at that. And then you may fall to your knees and grovel and beg and and you may be screaming and 
running down the street naked, chasing their, their car as they leave, as they drive away, just like a dog chases a car. You don't notice all the people are watching in horror. You don't notice them pointing and pulling out their phones and taking pictures. Can you still remember their face and the look in their eyes when they stared at you in your nakedness? Maybe they said something like, it's all right. I am your husband. I get to see everything. I remember. I remember his face, his eyes. At the time, you may have felt a little tinge of discomfort, but you had no idea what was getting ready to happen to you. You had no idea that everything would be stripped away. You had no idea that this partner, this person who vowed to love you forever, could butcher you like raw meat. I think they steal your skin and flesh and bones and wear them to fashion this beautiful cape or coat. And, or they stick all the broken pieces onto themselves until they absorb them and they have this new beautiful skin. They cannibalized themselves when they were young and in the end, they devour you too. There's something so dehumanizing about it in ways that you cannot imagine. When I picture humans who arrive in hell, I don't think of them wearing a t-shirt or something like that. If you study artistic renderings of hell, the inhabitants there are always naked. I remember how we went to Paris uh, on two separate visits that sort of book bookends were bookends in our lives together. Fifteen years apart, we went the first time on our honeymoon, and then fifteen years later we returned. Actually, just a week before he abandoned me and the marriage. That last time, we lingered as I put my hand on his shoulder and leaned in to smell his hair. We stood in front of the bas relief sculpture of the Gates of Hell at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and marveled at the depictions of the anguished, tormented souls. I tried to imagine what that must be like to be crowded together in eternal torment and completely naked. I have dreams now that I've been naked and tied to a table, tortured and then sacrificed as an offering to some dark lord and then there I am again in a cage, naked and afraid, cold and hungry. And then the next dream sequence, we're going down a freeway. My husband is exposing himself. Yeah, that was, that was a thing that he did sometimes. He was exposing himself, and then he was looking for my response to that as we sped down the highway. And suddenly he pulls over and puts me out of the car. And guess what? Yep. I am naked. He smirks, as all narcopaths are known to do, and speeds away. And all the other cars just pass by. No one's stopping to help. They're just pointing and laughing and taking pictures with their cell phones. And look at the naked crying lady by the side of the road. The dreams keep coming, and they're sprinkled with truth and tinged with tragedy. 
The human body is a gift, something sacred and special that should be honored and protected, but that is not your truth if you love a narcopath, because you were nothing more than just a body, just an object, just a toy. They never see the person that's in there. And in the end, when they murder you, and they dump the body by the side of the road like it's a carcass of a cow or a deer or something, and they never look back and never think about it again or have any regrets or remorse. So if you're in love with a narcopath, all I can say is prepare yourself. Keep something close to cover yourself with. Prepare to lose it all everything stripped away and then you're going to be left behind and erased so gird your loins and strengthen your spirit the magnitude of the betrayal will not only leave you decimated and eviscerated but you will also feel like you have been skinned alive the last few months before my husband left without warning. He devalued me by taking off all of my armor piece by piece, by dismantling my protection, humiliating me subtly, and compartmentalizing the snapshot images he was collecting like teeth or some sick souvenir. I didn't know what he was getting ready to do, I didn't know I was being stripped down and prepped for the kill. The way they leave you tells you everything, everything you ever need to know. And the way that they destroy you in the end leaves you naked. <laughs>